you had the people for and you had the people against. And yes, everybody got their three minutes to speak. But my contention begins with those who were listening from above in the pulpits. I had no idea who they were when I walked in. But the fact that they looked bored really didn't help their cause. I wanted to find out who they were, especially when, after hearing so much resistance from the community, that they would still move forward and vote in favor of the development. I learned later on that they are the planning commissions, and I wondered if this was the case all over the country and why I hear time and time again that there's this whole democratic process that, again, many of these developers hold on to like sacred oaths when they defend their positions. I met up later on with a person named Lylon Hewen, and she explained it to me. The planning commission and the planning department process is really pretty completely insufficient to engaging neighborhoods at this point. I did a study of cities across the country in terms of what are progressive planning policies. And what we found was that Oakland is actually really behind the ball. When you look at a city like Philadelphia, they have incredibly progressive policies to make sure that city planning is inclusive and equitable. Um, so that looks like they have at least two community advocates on the planning commission. They have uh, registered community organizations in neighborhoods where those community organizations actually are required to hold meetings about developments in their neighborhood and get feedback from residents to give input on new developments and making sure that they are working with that neighborhood. What do you see in Oakland that's different, that's not happening? Yeah, so here there's barely any notice about developments. Um, there's very little information about what's coming to our neighborhoods. Um, you know, what we'll see is maybe 17 days before a decision, we'll see a yellow placard pop up. And in those 17 days, you kind of have to notice it and you have to know what's going on to be able to actually give input on that, right? So 17 days is not a lot of time for a community to give input on what's going to permanently be there in their neighborhood for decades, decades, and centuries, right? So what we've seen, though, is really an inequity of what happens in different neighborhoods across the city, right? So if you take the Temescal, for example, you had a developer come in at Telegraph and 51st and, you know, create this really big project there that was going to shape the whole landscape of that neighborhood. But what you saw there was that the Nautilus group developers actually worked for about two years with that neighborhood and they had, you know, probably over a dozen community meetings and made sure that those residents had a say in what was going to happen in that neighborhood, right? And so that's, you know, kind of a gentrifying neighborhood. It's more of a, you know, upper middle class, middle class, you know, white neighborhood that it's become. And so you had people really active there and making sure that the community had a voice and so that project actually became a relatively great project because you have uh, some affordable housing. You had them take advantage of this density bonus that um, not very many developers have taken advantage of to be able to build a little bit higher to include more affordable units. So I believe they have about 11% units in there that are going to be affordable. And the community fought for that. And they also fought for uh, open space so that the developers actually creating a park for the community there so that, you know, residents in that area can enjoy 
the outdoors and fresh air and it can be a healthy place for families to be. They also are creating an entire urban garden on top of the roof there and that came through conversations with the community and so they've created a project that you know the community has not opposed that a lot of people came out to support and so we see that as kind of one good model you know there's always people who aren't happy with it Um, but in the end relatively that was a relatively good engagement process whereas for example when you look at Chinatown and the Black Arts District you have developers that are coming in maybe for a few weeks maybe for a month at the most trying to meet with people but that's not a real meaningful engagement process, right? You can't just meet for a month and create something permanent in this community that's going to benefit the community, right? You have to really work with communities for, you know, three to six to nine to 12 months, at least, to get good input, make sure that there's buy-in, have the community be a part of what's going to be in their neighborhood. Oakland thrives with the multicultural force. There is so much diversity here. And when it comes to representation, you would imagine a meeting of official dealings to be filled with people of many different backgrounds and colors. But in fact, being at the planning commission meeting gave me a very different perspective. It's really not representative of the city. It's filled with architects who work with developers. There's actually a developer attorney on the commission. Um, There's real estate people on the planning commission, right? And there's not very many community advocates on the planning commission people who are actually from these neighborhoods um, most of the people on the planning commission from what i understand are from rockridge and places like montclair you know upper class white neighborhoods and yet they're charged to plan for the entire city so we're actually calling for a planning commission that's geographically representative that you have to have people who are from east oakland you have to have people who live in west oakland who who live in north oakland who understand the flatlands who understand working class communities and low-income communities of color um, who will make sure that those interests are represented and make sure that developers and businesses really work with the communities and make sure that their projects are equitable. And those planning commissioners are appointed by the mayor. And Mayor Libby Schaff has made the commission less diverse. She's appointed mostly upper-class white people who have a stake and an investment and, frankly, a conflict of interest in uh, developers and developments. And that really matters. So Lylan works with the developers and with her community and with other neighbors in order to have dialogue and participation in the planning process. One of those community neighbors are the folks over at the Malanga Cascalord Center for the Arts in the Black Arts District, where a 262-unit complex is being proposed. The conversation continues with a back and forth between a major nationwide developer and the local community. The focus lies in this intersection of communities and the future landscape of Oakland herself. The developer's name is Wood Partners. Here's Lylan Hewen. Yeah, so Wood Partners, we appealed in July their project. And we were really disappointed because at that point, the developers had promised us that if they were approved by the Planning Commission, that they would continue talking with the community. And instead, they did not. They basically waited us out for three months and weren't willing to work with us further to make sure that the community had full buy-in in their project. So the appeal hearing is actually coming up on Tuesday, October 4th at the city council meeting. 
We are now meeting with city council members uh, to make sure that when we come to an appeal hearing on October 4th, one, we're asking them to pull the item. We're asking them to send the developer back to the negotiating table until we have a respectful agreement. So we're continuing to meet with the developers uh, to see if they can reach our baselines for anti-displacement protections. If they don't, we're asking the city council to pull the agenda item so that it sends the developer back to the negotiating table to basically say, look, we're not going to approve this project until you work with the community in earnest and uh, make sure that there's protections in your project. So we've looked at models like in Berkeley, for example, there's a progressive zoning board that actually tells developers, you know, look, you have to go and work with neighbors. You have to go and work with uh, the faith community. You have to go and work with labor first before you come to us for approval, right? Um, whereas in Oakland, the planning commission just fast tracks these projects and approves them, you know, within a matter of weeks and they have no standard then for what equitable development is, right? So the community is really fighting to raise the bar for development in Oakland and say, you know, we're not at a point where we can just give away our land and give away our neighborhoods, right? We're not desperate anymore for development because Oakland is one of the hottest markets in the country right now. We need to be careful and thoughtful about how we plan our neighborhoods and make sure that residents are at the table, right? In these negotiations, we are trying to secure affordable housing. We're trying to secure local hire and working with local trade unions who can make sure that the workers are being paid really living wages, right? And also that the conditions are safe, right? On most of these private developments, we're seeing people being flown in sometimes and bussed in from other regions that aren't in Oakland and aren't spending their money back in Oakland. Um, and the conditions aren't as safe because they hire subcontractors for, you know, lower wages basically, right? Um, so we want to make sure that we have local hire, that they're working with the trade unions. Um, and we also want to make sure that there's affordable retail on these projects, right? So that some of our small businesses, our longtime businesses can afford to stay in these neighborhoods. Uh, what do you need from the community? Do we need to stand outside? Do we need to like light some torches? What do we got to do? <laughs> a few things. We are asking people to come out to the city council meeting on October 4th. We have about 40 labor folks who are going to come out, workers who actually work on these projects and build these projects. Because in the Wood Partners development, for example, we're actually only asking for about 37 local workers to be able to work on that project. That's not an unreasonable request. Um, but Wood Partners continues to refuse to work with labor. Um, they also have refused to to include any affordable housing in this project. They have 262 units, and in the midst of the worst cr housing crisis Oakland has seen possibly ever, with you know thousands of people on the streets homeless, they refuse consistently refuse to include any affordable housing, even workforce housing, um, even though they're one of the largest developers in the nation with nine billion dollars in assets, and they're backed by CBRE, which is the world's largest real estate investor with over $90 billion in assets. So even though they have all of these resources, they're refusing and saying, well, we can't afford to build affordable housing. And we know that that's not true. But there is a shift that needs to happen in the city of Oakland where residents come before developers and um, 
making sure that we don't continue to just fast track these projects and um, let developers do whatever they want in the city um, without making sure that they have to work with the community. Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA here in Berkeley. That was Dear Landlord by Bob Dylan. Classic. Tonight we're going to talk tonight we're talking about the current housing crisis here in the Bay Area. And before the break, we heard from Lylan Hewen of the Chinatown Coalition. The city council meeting she was talking about will be on Tuesday, October 4th at 6 p.m. in Oakland at the city hall at the Frank Ogawa Plaza. We're going to see how that city council meeting goes, and we'll get an update later on. Best of luck, then, as we move forward into this decade. We'll have a link to the Chinatown Coalition on the web later on today, too. Um, later, we're also going to hear from a representative of Causa Justa, Just Cause, to get some insight into the housing situation here in the Bay Area and what we can do to change things. But right now, let's learn a little bit more about tiny houses. While city officials debate what to do next, Conversations about alternative housing are taking place. Tiny houses are one creative alternative to renting traditional houses or apartments. So what are tiny houses? Well, Silvia Torres spoke with several people, including Mike Lee and Sally Hinman, executive director of Youth Spirit Artworks and resident Carol Daney. Silvia is going to tell us if there are plans to build tiny homes in Berkeley. If so... Who is for the idea and who is against it?
I am Sylvia Torres, and I want to look at one of the alternative solutions that Berkeley and other cities in the Bay Area are considering as a solution to the housing crisis. Can tiny houses solve the homelessness and housing crisis in the Bay Area? According to the June 23, 2015 report to the Berkeley Mayor and City Council by the Berkeley Homeless Task Force, Berkeley per capita has one of the largest chronic homeless population in the entire county. Berkeley spends approximately $3 million on homeless services that meet the basic needs of the homeless. But one critical area lacking is providing short-term and permanent housing to get the homeless off the streets. National and local government agencies are shifting their focus away from emergency services and moving towards housing first. A group of community organizations and community activists met early this year to come up with alternative solutions to the housing crisis among homeless members of our community. Among them were Mike Lee, a community and homeless advocate, Sally Hintman, executive director of Youth Spirit Artworks. What do these activists have in common? Well, they are all strong advocates and supporters of Tiny Houses Project. What is the Tiny Houses for the Homeless Project? This is what Mike Lee has to say about the origins of the proposal and his affiliation with the project. My name is Michael Lee. We had been sitting around looking at unsheltered people, specifically senior citizens. I had just dealt with an individual, 72 years old, a gentleman who was dying of cancer, and sent him to San Francisco to try to get him shelter because there is no shelter here in Berkeley. And I initiated the conversations around tiny houses with that specific population in mind because the city has, has been hesitant in other solutions that we came up with. I was desperately searching for a solution. So I initiated the conversation in response to the overwhelming need out here among our senior homeless population and also as part of my uh, campaign uh, to that I am going to end homelessness under a Lee administration sort of thing. Out of that, the community immediately responded and said, what a wonderful idea. And uh, Sally Hindman from YSA, she took the lead on um, calling a, uh, a series of community meetings sort of thing. And that's basically where we're at right now. We actually progressed very well. Um, we have now the support of at least six council members that agree with the general idea of using tiny houses as a, as a strategy to end homelessness. We have a huge community coalition, in fact, is that what we're going to do is we're going to create a model home on wheels and tour it around the city so that people can basically kick the tires. And we're going to explain to them what this is, what our ideas are as a strategy to end homelessness, ask them what they think of it and get that community input. The idea of this is that without community support, the idea goes no further than the model home. 
The city council likes this, individual council members like this, because it doesn't require a huge investment from the city or a huge commitment of time from them. Um, and we get to actually have community involvement because no matter what happens, it's a community that has to support the idea because that's the only way that we're going to end homelessness is by forming those strategic partnerships. According to Sally Hintman, they used the Occupy Madison, Wisconsin prototype to develop their proposal. We are modeling our first tiny house after the prototype that's been created by Occupy Madison. Occupy Madison in Madison, Wisconsin has created a village that's really, really similar to exactly what we're trying to create right now as our first um, tiny house youth project. And so um, we feel that, that the model that they have in their prototype house will be one that really works well for us. You know, there's a lot of different types of tiny houses that have come forward as possible examples, but we want one that can be self-sufficient and then also at the same time can still relate to a community building. So we feel that, that Occupy Madison has a really good model that for us to use. We know that some great, great uh, tiny houses have been done in Oakland, in Emeryville, you know, a whole variety of different, they did one at, um, at Realm charter school that was very cool they did too actually but the one that we're thinking about reproducing first is going to be uh, occupy madison's prototype can you explain a little bit what is the difference between the madison and the other tiny houses that has been built around here I think that there's there's been a number of different models developed around the country, and, and I'm probably not the biggest expert on those, trained as a, as a clergy person and not a, a builder. But the, I think the two big distinctions in, in types of tiny houses are ones that are self-sufficient, that have their own toilets and kitchens and lighting and so forth, electricity, and then ones that depend on a community house and community facilities that everybody shares. And so what we're going to do is, on the one hand, try to have a community building that, that our youth are going to be able to have access to, but we are planning on having each house have their own compost toilet so that and, and kitchen so that people will be able to use their own um, very small facilities as they wish. Sally, one of the big concerns that people have regarding the tiny houses is that there is a selection process, an application process, and some of these communities are excluding people who had prior criminal record and there's a concern of the mental health. Have you guys considered how you guys are going to address some of these concerns? You know, I think that, um, that one of the reasons that in building permanent affordable housing and anything that is funded by HUD or you know a number of the government sources of funding, criminal records end up being um, a problem for following the guidelines for HUD, for example. And so it puts organizations in a catch-22 because they, if they have strong values that they aren't um, wanting to check criminal records, they won't be able to have access to streams of money that require those checks. And so one of the great things about not using those streams of money and instead depending on volunteers is that we won't have that problem. 
And when you get into those uh, large sources of government money and so forth, that you run into these really tough restrictions. We have a group of youth that have um, sort of self-selected and are interested in this first tiny house village. And I think that it's a great group of youth that it shouldn't be a problem. They have their own, you know, really the, the people that are being able to live in the tiny house community are people who are coming to the meetings and actively involved. And, and so they're sort of self-selecting on the basis of their interest and passion and activity in it. We'll be dealing with these things as time goes on. And, you know, there are realities that affordable housing developers deal with that are just very tough and unfair that themselves need to be changed. The rules around, you know, criminal background checks for, for HUD housing and so forth, they're terrible and they need to be changed. But those are kind of a reality for, for groups that try to access that money. The group has explored connections with the Berkeley City Council members and officials. Support for the project is growing. This is what Alejandro Soto Vigil, A to the Council member Chris Worthington, has to say. My name is Alejandro Soto Vigil. I'm a legislative aide for Council member Chris Worthington. We had been examining the tiny houses uh, proposal here in Berkeley. Um, we crafted it based on other uh, jurisdictions' models, Seattle, Texas, and we think that Berkeley can utilize some of its open space for these projects um, because we obviously have a homeless population issue. People need to get housed. This is a great model to house a lot of folks. It's cheap. It's like 15000 per unit. Um, and then it also has some shared common space, kitchenette, shower, things like that. Uh, it's, it depends on what kind of model Berkeley wants and has a space for. Um, but I think that uh, this is something we can utilize. And I think Councilmember Worthington uh, really believes in this issue. And we want to see city funding going towards that creation of um, the houses and find some space. So, and you said you guys were involved with the original plan. Can you tell me a little bit more exactly what kind of involvement was that? So, so the way the city government works is that uh, if you really want something to move forward, you create a council item. So out of Councilmember Worthington's office, we created a council item, moved it through the city council and said, hey, you know, we really want to uh, examine this program and bring it here in Berkeley. Uh, and so we pretty much spearheaded the tiny houses. And have you guys identified sites where the communities can be developed? Because you're talking about a community. Well, yeah. And the funding. Yeah, so generally um, when we do a program like this and we want to examine it, we refer to the city manager to have staff uh, check out the feasibility uh, economically and uh, where we would place this site. Generally, our initial thoughts were that it would go into West Berkeley because it's a little uh, uh, more open and less dense. Um, so that's the first idea, the first location, uh, although we haven't gotten a report back yet because it's still in the preliminary phase. And funding-wise, uh, I think the city uh, general fund would be the place we would examine where funding would be available. I mean, we have more of a surplus now than we've had in a long time. And we obviously, as we said earlier, we have a housing issue for homeless folks. And we have too many homeless people in Berkeley uh, all over the state and, and this nation. So this is some model that we'd love to uh, bring here in home in Berkeley. But not everyone is in favor of the Tiny Houses project. Carol Denny, a Berkeley musician, singer, poet, activist, and veteran of civil liberties and social movements, opposes the proposal. 
According to Denny, there are other alternatives that are more effective and practical. Let's listen to what Carol Denny has to say about Tiny Houses Project. My name is Carol Denny. I work with Street Spirit. I'm a local writer and musician. I don't have a very high opinion of tiny houses, but I don't. I am thrilled that people are getting together and um, cooperating with creative suggestions about homelessness because I do care deeply about the housing crisis. I just think there are more cost-effective and cooperative suggestions. If the most important thing is to house people right away, I think there are some things that are even faster than tiny houses, and one of them simply would be to take... um, uh, vacant buildings, such as our old city hall is pretty much now, and just open up the lobby for people to sleep there. That would give at least 30 to 40 people a warm, lit sleeping space near a bathroom, indoors, where they could organize together to move from there to wherever they wish, and uh, also to have a campground so people could just put up and down tents. One thing about tiny houses is they are not very portable unless you have a vehicle. They weigh a lot. And a tent, on the other hand, as cold as it might be, is still something that you can organize to use even in winter in California and strike within five minutes if the police decide that they don't want you there. I would say uh, rolling back the law that makes it illegal for people to sleep in their own vehicles and creating a campground would come way ahead of tiny houses for me. One of the most important things we could do immediately as a community is use empty space. And there's plenty of it in the city of Berkeley, not only commercial space, but residential space that's been sitting empty a long time. And one of the easiest mechanisms for doing that is to just to say to the people who own that empty space and are holding it in the hopes of getting a very, very high rent for it or a very, very high residential rent for it is, well, you got one more month to leave it empty and then we're going to use it because we have a housing emergency. And the city of Berkeley has the right legally to use it to house people in an emergency. We have one right here, right now. And welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA. That was our own Sylvia Torres bringing us some information on the tiny houses movement. And we have an update on Sylvia's story. Youth Spirit Artwork, in partnership with Housing Consultation of East Bay, are in the process of locating a site for tiny house villages. They are raising funds to construct a prototype that will be housed on the the Youth Spirit Artwork's location. If you want more information about this project, please go to our website, kpfaapprentice.org. We will have a link on that page. Tonight, we're talking about the ongoing housing crisis here in the Bay Area. And we'll be back in a moment with a representative from Causa Justa, Just Cause. And we'll be talking about what they do to stop eviction. Stay with us. Oye la lluvia en los techos de cartón. Qué triste vive mi gente. 
en las casas de cartón. Viene bajando el obrero, casi arrastrando sus pasos por el peso del sufrir. Mira que mucho ha sufrido. Mira que pesa el sufrir. Lo mismo que ayer es un mundo sin mañana. Qué triste se oye la lluvia en los techos de cartón. Qué triste vive mi gente. Las casas de cartón Niños color de mi tierra Con sus mismas cicatrices Millonarios de lombrices And that was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful song by Los Guaraguao That was called Casas de Cartón Which translates as Cardboard Houses Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley. If you just tuned in, we're talking about the high cost of renting in the Bay Area and some of the alternatives we can um, come up with to reduce homelessness. After years of ongoing price increases that forced hundreds of residents out of their homes, last year Alameda County passed a measure imposing a ban on rent strikes. Who knew you could do such a thing and what took them so long? It's called a Housing State of Emergency Moratorium. It puts a freeze on rent increases. It's a short-term solution. But it does nothing to help the people who can't find a place they can afford. Did you know that 60% of Oakland residents are renters and that most have an average income of $30,000 a year? The average rent these days approaches about $3,000. That's $500 more than a person making $30,000 a year can afford. And rent prices have jumped 40% between 2014 and 2015. That is according to an article in Curved SF, an online publication. The rising costs associated with rent and a place to live have put people on the street. And it's not just the people you pass in the wee hours of the morning before the city begins to stir, or the families and veterans living under the freeway overpasses. It's the people next to you in the office who sleeps in his or her car and goes to the gym in the morning, takes a shower, changes clothes, and heads off to work as if it were a normal day. Here with us now is Alma Blackwell and Zane Burton. They are going to talk about the rent crisis here in Oakland, what the organization Just Cause is doing, and what we can do to help them improve the situation here in the area and across the country. 
Welcome, Alma. Welcome, Zane. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you. Will you please introduce yourself, Alma, to us and tell us what your role is at um, Just Cause? Yes, hi. My name is Alma Blackwell, and I'm a long-term resident here, or actually um, born and raised here in Oakland. And I am the housing, Oakland Housing Rights Organizer at Casa Husa Just Cause. And what is it that you, um, how did you get involved with the organization? So just to explain a little bit about the organization, we are a member-based organization building power in low-income and working-class communities of color, primarily in African-American Latino communities in Oakland, San Francisco, and the Bayview Hunters Point. So I work with um, to promote member protagonism in the organization. You know, the, ga- the engagement and development of our members is an important aspect of my work. And we provide opportunities for members to engage in political education, learning how to build campaigns, talking to media, speaking at city council meetings, and learning about the systems that keep our communities oppressed. So in other words, we invest in human and community development in neighborhoods where development is happening. One of the best things that you can do is to invest in residents who live in the community. Thank you. Do you get a lot of good response from uh, from the community members? Like, do they are they learning fast and going in like? Well, oftentimes we ha- we meet um, residents where they are. Um, people who come into our organization actually. We meet a lot of them through our, our tenant rights um, clinic, and so we are meeting people where they are. And so it takes, you know, it takes time to develop our members. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we have Zane here. Did you meet uh, Zane in the Renders Right Clinic? Renders yes. Rights clinic? Actually, Zane um, did come to um, our come into our tenant rights clinic to see our counselors. He was having an issue um, with his landlord um, facing a rent increase and. That's how we met Zane. Zane, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your situation here in the area in Oakland? Yes, my name is Zane Burton. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, and I came out here for a while, ended up staying here in Oakland. And going through that, I uh, became homeless after so many years. Whereas that at one point, you know, when I first came out here, I was able to work, pay my rent, have money on the side and really live a nice quality of life. And then things happen in my life that caused me to fall back. And in the process of falling back, I became homeless here in Oakland for an extended amount of time. Then I started working a stipend job at $85 a month doing group prep. I didn't know then that the group prep that I was doing for this company would end up really teaching me the qualities of life, um, how important it is to have a roof over your head. And I was doing all that through the extent of being homeless, and I say, wow, now my priorities started getting intact. I ended up landing a job in San Francisco, and uh, it's a pretty good job. I'm a health worker. I couldn't live in San Francisco, so I moved back over here to Oakland. And the apartment building that I um, found, the rent was comparable from the amount of money that I was making. Then the building got sold. I mean, the building was sold. The new owners immediately came in, slapped on a little paint in the place, and did a few extras around there and was going to go up on my rent. And really, I thought I was like 
by myself. I didn't have nowhere to go, and that once again I'd be homeless. And I have my fiance and my granddaughter living with me now, and I wasn't about the three of us being homeless, as you mentioned earlier. So I came in contact with Just Cause, and Just Cause started educating me about my rights here in Oakland and how important it is to have these rights in place. Otherwise, I would have ended up on the street. See, the words um, gentrification, displacement, all these words was kind of new to me. I didn't understand the importance of it until Just Cause started educating me and letting me know that I had rights that it wasn't like just coming in, frightening me out with high rent, oh, where I'm going to go. No, I could stand up and fight. I do remember a lot, like especially during the housing crisis, um, I had a couple of friends that they the banks came in and they said, okay, it's time for you to go. You need to move out because you haven't paid. And sure enough, out of fear, or I don't know what it was, but they just up and left. They up and left their houses, and, and they're gone. The banks took them, everything. Um, are these some of the common issues that you hear about, Ms. Blackwell? Yes. Actually, a lot of um, tenants and residents do not know about um, their rights as tenants, and we, tenants do have rights, and so uh, part of the work that we do at Casa Houston, our tenant rights clinic, is um, educating tenants about what their rights are. We have um, Know Your Rights trainings where um, we um, invite community members out to learn about what their rights are. And we do these trainings every other month. And so, yes, this is we see this a lot, that people are unaware. A lot of times when they don't know what their rights are, they'll, they'll just leave, right, leave the units. And they have rights. And so I'm glad we're here today to let folks know that you do have rights as tenants. And, you know, if you are facing an issue with your landlord and you don't know what your rights are, um, we have a tenant a, a tenant clinic, um, excuse me, a, a tenant rights clinic where you can call and make an appointment to speak with our with our counselors. And that number is 510-TENANTS or 510-836-2687. That's great to hear that because, um, as Debbie just mentioned, a lot of people, a lot of times people don't know. I actually spoke with a lady who actually works here as a volunteer. Her name is Terry Parrish. Mm-hmm. And she's lived in her home for more than 25 years. And like you said, they did a few improvements to her property. Um, and the next thing she knew, she was getting an eviction notice. And I noticed that one of the things that we hear a lot of times is um, the landlord will say they're going to move someone else into the house that's a res- relative or something like that and use that as a reason um, to get a person out. Um, so what can you give um, the listeners maybe one or two very important things that they should know um, that they have a right that is a right that they can't be evicted or that can halt an eviction for them. Right. So, yes, and we know that landlords um, use all different kind of tactics to push people out. And, you know, you, you do have rights if you are living in a unit that's built before 1980. You have, you're protected under um, excuse me, under 19, and you're protected under just cause eviction, and we're actually working on the current measure that will be on the November ballot to extend that to um, units built before December 31st, 1995, but then you're, if you're in a unit that's built before 1983, you're covered under rent control here in Oakland, and it's that's also a part of um, our measure to JJ to strengthen the rent control here, so um, 
Yeah, the burden would actually be on the, the, the landlord to file a petition if he wants to increase a rent that's above the annual um, consumer price index or inflation. Now, we want to hear, um, you just mentioned yes. Measure JJ. We want to hear about that, but we also want to make sure that um, before you leave, you tell um, residents um, where they can go to a clinic the hours and the locations they can go to. But Measure J for now. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. So Measure J, J, J. J. <laughs> and, and you know, I just want to mention first that we are in the severe housing crisis here in Oakland. Um, we're seeing rising rents and, and long-term tenants who are being pushed out of their homes and their communities. And we're losing the diversity of Oakland. And so we worked with our um, local elected officials to um, get a ballot, I mean, get a measure on the ballot for November to strengthen um, tenant protections here in Oakland. And what Measure JJ will do will strengthen the rent control, um, like I mentioned, so that landlords have to get the rent board's approval to raise rents on um, on tenants um, above the annual cost of living increase. Measure JJ will also expand protection against evictions. And we know that uh, many folks are getting evicted out, out of their units. Um, against evictions to all buildings that are built before 1996. Like I said, um, to, it will it will protect units that are constructed through December 31st, 1995. And, um, excuse me, so that renters can, um, oh, I'm sorry, so there, so we know that um, evictions um, usually happen um, when you, um, tenants fail to pay rent or they're breaking the law and so this will actually cover more evictions for tenants and measure jj will also make the rent board more accountable to our community and make it more transparent mm-hmm. i'm curious um what is and i have to keep saying measure jj instead of measure j in my head um zane yeah. You said you had just moved into your property. I mean, into your, the apartment where you live. So, yeah. what's the difference? What would be the difference in what's happening with him, and what would happen to someone who's been living there for an extended period of time? Okay, I'm sorry. Repeat what, the question, please. What would what would be the difference? In, is there? I should say, is there a difference in the solution or the process that they would go through if a person has lived there a few months versus a person who has lived in their residence for 20 or 25 years? So, if a person has lived in their residence um, for 20 or 25 years, there's, um, they are definitely covered by um, covered under the law right now under rent control and just cause eviction. And if it's a newer building um, that's built, say, after 1995, um, <clears throat> and then actually um, that law um, falls under the state law, Costa-Hawkins law. So, we actually weren't able to um, expanded no more than um, December 31st, 1995. So, but right now it's 1980. So, um, you know, we, we had to compromise. Of course, we had hoped to get it to to cover all new units. But um, even through from 1980, October 1980 through December 31st, 1995, is covering another 10 to 12,000 units. So that's still a, a good amount of renters. You know, I had a question for you. When you talk about landlords. Um, or property, I mean, are we talking about property managers also? Are we talking about, like, big apartment complexes? Um, so, Badger JJ actually will, um, it's, it, it will 
it's fair to to small landlords actually because um, it does not impact them. Um, um, units that are owner occupied or buildings with three or, or units or fewer are will not be impacted by J- Measure JJ. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. That's a good information to have. Yeah, because I imagine that some landlords just they're just trying to make their buck, right? They're just trying to make their money, but. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and some landlords are actually um, <clears throat> value, excuse me, profits over humans, so they are trying to make a buck, a buck. But there are some good landlords out there as well. And this measure will, you know, will landlords will still be able to raise rent to cover, like, the cost of their maintenance. Um, and they can, they can evict tenants that are actually breaking the law. And if they show hardship or need to raise their rents higher, um, then they have to get approval from the, from the rent board. So what's happening with you now, Zane? What's happening now? Well, right now, like I said, I'm working. I have a fairly good job. But if not for just cause, my whole check would have been going towards my rent. See, as I was saying, displacement, gentrification, and homelessness, these are the uh, things that is really putting a lot of people out in the streets um i'm heard i heard on the news that uh it's 171 new townhouses and uh condominiums that's being built in west oakland and uh they starting out at 600,000 or more about 20 of them have been completed and already they have like a thousand on the waiting list. I mean, when things like that start happening, it puts people at risk, especially those that everyday person that has to work, the individuals that has to go to school and work, taking care of their family. Don't leave any money for them to have fun or to buy hygiene even. I mean, and um, not to be in comparison, but even in San Francisco, I think the problem is a little bit worse. But still, housing is a human right. Okay, a better quality of life is a human right. And this is supposed to be one of the most richest countries in the world for some of the things that we are facing that really could be fixed if it wasn't for greed, per se. I mean, as we mentioned, all is not included in this, but the majority are. You know, there's a lot of... uh lot to say when it comes to um, home ownership and because uh, right now we're not even talking about home ownership we're talking about renting mm-hmm. exactly. exactly and uh, right now as, as far as I understand it I know that Millennials and a lot of other people too they have little hope of actually becoming homeowners um, that's that's been one of the biggest uh, you know issues ongoing but the whole uh, the rental crisis is, is where we're at right now and I just want to mention, you know, during the foreclosure crisis in 2008, a lot of homeowners lost their home and, you know, had to go into the rental market. And so, like, we are 110 million renters strong across this nation. So that says a lot about, um, you know, renter power that we have um, and that we actually have to stand up and struggle together, but also stand in solidarity to to create the change and create policies that will will change our communities. I, I just would like to say in closing, I feel Measure JJ here in Oakland will serve as a watchdog, okay? And if not, if Measure JJ 
in Oakland does not pass, it would be like the wolf watching the hen house. And we all know what will happen if a wolf watch a hen house, right? Yes, we do. <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you, for being on the show. Please, please um, tell us how the can residents in everywhere in the Bay Area can come to a clinic for Just Cause and um, unite in solidarity to help with this issue. Yes, yeah, so if you're having an issue with your landlord, you can call our Tenant Rights Clinic hotline at 510-TENANT or 510-836-2687. And if you want to know more about Measure JJ and what it will do to help our folks here in Oakland, please go to our website at protectoaklandrenters.org. Thank, thank you so you. much, Ms. Blackwell, Mr. Zane. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks a lot, Sylvia Torres for going out into the field and getting some great information about what's happening in the city. Next, Tune in next week to Full Circle here on KPFA. Check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org. There you can listen to our shows and see photos of us and our guests. The executive producer for Full Circle is Ms. M. Our technical director is Free Will and Franklin Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. We've been your host. I'm Teresa Adams. And I'm David Delagran. Thank you, Sylvia, on the board. And thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next.